Good morning, everybody. You may be wondering what this is. You know what this is. This, well, I just want to let you know that I've placed my full trust in Jesus the Messiah, Son of the Living God, but I haven't quite placed my full trust in electronic devices. So this is my backup. <laughs> so with that, um, you have to bear with me a little bit. Oh, look at that. Well, good morning. Response to Pastor Mark's announcement last week uh, that I'm in the ordination process. Uh, go church, becoming a fellow pastor, elder. Um, I'll be giving you my brief testimony, calling, and then we'll get into the sermon. And the main text of the sermon is going to be from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. But before we get there, I'm going to bookend it with a scene that you're probably familiar with, and that is the scene that Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate. And so with that, when we get to the sermon, just keep that scene in mind. And I'm going to have you push the pause button on that mental visual that you have, and we'll get started. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray today for all those who have come here to worship you, and to those who will worship you later this week while watching it online, that they may have an open heart to hear your word of truth and resist our resistance for change and to fully embrace your call, your offer of eternal life through your Son, Jesus the Messiah. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. All right, a little bit about me. I don't like being up here exposing me because I'd rather be exposing Scripture. But in this case, I think we're going to make an exception. And today's sermon, when we get to it, it's going to be a little different uh, in that normally I like to go through a section of Scripture and in an expository way, meaning that the, the, the message comes from the text of the Scripture that's what I want to herald God's word of truth to you instead of me adding something into the scripture that it may or may not say. So that's a, my normal way of doing it. And I'm a books of the Bible guy, so that's, you know, topical is fine. I love topical too because you can still exposit the scriptures topically, do the same thing. It's all good. So uh, just a little bit of a, a, a preview of, of, of how I view that. Um, I'd like to share just a few high points of um, who I am, uh, some of the major events that will help define the man that stands before you today. Overall, I would have to say I'm a changed and new man because of Jesus Christ. One of my life verses that I personalize is Colossians 1, 13 and 14. And it says, and I say this for myself, and you can too if you've accepted Christ. For he rescued me from the dominion of darkness and delivered me into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom I have redemption, the forgiveness of my sin. I was born in Portland, Oregon, and I've lived in Oregon and Washington all my life. True Northwesterner. I was raised in a very loving home but I wouldn't call it a Christian home. I never made a confession of faith when I was a child, nor 
elementary school nor high school. I sensed, though, that God was drawing me to him based on some times at church as a child. Uh, a couple of times we would go, uh, my brothers and I, uh, my two older brothers and myself would walk down to the community church in Park Rose and would attend, show up without any parents at all, just kids showing up at church. <laughs> that left an impact on me, and that's where I was first introduced to Jesus, but I didn't really know what all that meant. Later on in high school, I found myself empty because that draw would not let go, yet I didn't know how to fill it. I didn't reciprocate to that draw. I was basically one of those high school partiers of the 70s. Nevertheless, God's draw, God's hold did not let go. He wouldn't let go of me. That emptiness couldn't be filled in any way that I tried. When I was 20 years old, I saw Franco Zeffirelli's film, Jesus of Nazareth. It's an eight-hour film, okay? <laughs> it's awesome. It stirred my heart again. But I still made no profession of faith from it. 1986, I got married, my first marriage, and quickly had a family. The longing to somehow fill the void in me would not go away. After I was married, yet before I accepted Christ, I was drawn in spirit to the pastor who married us, Dave Pastana at Park Rose First Baptist Church. Dave discipled me through the Word of God. And after several sessions of discipleship, it's interesting how God works. You know, he works differently with different people. So my experience may not be your experience, and don't worry about it. God's taking you in a way He will have you go, and He will make Himself plain to you if you draw to Him. My experience was in a dream. God does work those ways because I'm telling you, it happened. I had an encounter in my dream of Jesus, and I barged in just like I owned the place, and there he was standing before me. His eyes, I'll never forget his eyes, pierced my soul, and I felt as liquid just poured out on the ground. That was my experience. That gave me a reverent, proper fear of the Lord that I think is really good. It has not left me to this day. And I remember that dream very vividly. I was thrilled. I came to the next session. I, accept, I wanted to ask Dave, Dave, before I got there, I said, Dave, I have something to confess. My sin, my trust in Jesus. And right there in his office here at Park Rose First Baptist Church, I gave my soul to Jesus. And I was new. I, it was just a different outlook from that point on. I felt that that void was filled. I wanted to share my new faith with my wife at the time. She was not interested at all about that or the idea of going to church. So because of the great immaturity from both of us, because I have culpability in this at the time because of my immaturity, the marriage drifted apart and she filed for divorce. That's a big point of my life and how God's grace has led me through that. I completely know why God hates divorce. 
I know the Christian stigma that's placed upon that category. I know what it feels like to have brothers and sisters in Christ not often, but on occasion, place that sign that like a leper has to do, I am unclean. I know what that stigma feels like. Yet, through God's grace, walk this through it. So my only comfort at that time was 1 Corinthians 7.15, which reads, But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. 1994, I married Vicki. I clearly see Jesus in her. She sees me as I am and deeply loves me. She's been such a great encouragement in my Christian growth. Now, you may be asking yourself, does a past divorce disqualify me from the pastorate? I would just say circumstances matter, but I'd like to explain that that's a good question. And on the surface, it may seem so to some. The two passages that speak of this regarding qualifications of elders is found in 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.6. In both references, most translations say husband of one wife. But the Greek text literally says one woman man. Mias gorkaes andra in the Timothy passage. The entire team of elders and pastors at Go Church, including myself, I agree with, define the latter meaning of the text. The greater teaching of these verses is, first of all, that the man is, gender man is the pastor, okay? The second of all is that he is a one-woman man. He's not looking out elsewhere. One could argue that a pastor-elder could technically not be divorced, but secretly have an extramarital affair, addicted to pornography, or lustful after all kinds of things, which would disqualify him from the latter meaning of the text, but not necessarily the former. I've observed this exact scenario happen in my lifetime with a trusted and high esteemed professor, seminary professor, and pastor of a church that this happened to. And the witness of that, it shook the core of many. One woman man. I'd like to just do a quick nugget that I enjoy because when I look at the text of Hebrew and Greek, I'm just going to tell you right now, I feel like a little puppy dog wags its tail as a sniffing at everything. I, I, I love looking at the text, and I see things in the, in the original languages that I love to bring out. And here's one of them. Um, in, the, in the Timothy passage, it says, one woman man, which is the gender male. In the Titus passage, it's a, there's a little different nuance on that. It says, anir. Ah, what is that? Well, that, the first one describes that it's a man. The Titus passage describes the character of that man. You could interpret it by saying one woman gentleman. That's the same 
word that they use to address ladies and gentlemen. And so that's the character of the man that you're looking for. Not only is it a one-woman man, is he a one-woman gentleman. From 1994 to 2022, I was a member at Bethany Baptist Church, Westside Portland. While there, I taught through the Bible, covering every book several times. I'm a Bible book guy. <laughs> the adult Sunday school class, spanning over a 20-year period. I served as lay elder from 2007 to 2021, prior to us moving to Ridgefield, Washington. In June 2022, I transferred my membership in good standing to go church. Now, God's calling is a very important part of this process. In what way has God called me? Well, I would say God's calling is unique to each person. And I'm certain every person has their own nuance of God's calling. For me, I would say God's calling is being summoned and seized with a love from Christ that won't let go. 2 Corinthians 15, 14 and 15 says, for Christ, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who should live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now, that Greek word for compels means to be seized. And that's about the best way I could describe God's calling. He compels me out of his love. There are five Bible verses, and I'm not going to go through all five Bible verses that in succession kind of describe my calling. Uh, Ezra 7.10 is the basis of that, where it says Ezra dedicated his heart to study the law, to practice it and teach it in all of Israel. That's the foundation of it. But other verses from that are 1 Corinthians 14.3 and 4, Ephesians 4.12 and 13 speak of building the church. Matthew 28, 19, and 20, which speak of discipleship. And Hebrews 13, 7, which speak of a life lived, looking back. So I would say in my own words, this is my calling. I am fully convinced that God has called me to love my family, devote myself to the study of God's word in the original languages, and put it into practice in my life, and teach it to others likewise to strengthen, encourage, comfort, admonish when necessary, to equip, to help edify the church to maturity, to help make disciples of the gospel that in turn make disciples. I desire that after my life on earth is over, that my family, friends, and acquaintances will consider how I live my life and will want to imitate my faith in their lives. So now we come to the sermon that just gives you a little taste of who I am. I'm an open book. You can approach me and ask any question you want. Today's sermon is going to be from John chapter 1. And before we get to the text, I would like to start off, as I said before, bookending this sermon with the scene that Jesus is before Pilate. And it's taken from, the first scene is from John 18, 33 to 38. 
we're given an account of Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate, where Pilate asks Jesus if he is the king of the Jews. Jesus replies, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to protect my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now, my kingdom is from another place. Oh, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. Let's stop it right there because I want to answer Pilate's question because even though Jesus doesn't seem to respond to Pilate's question, we're not left without an answer. Pilate asks the question that many people today are asking and searching for, truth in a world full of deception. Now, a quick note on a viewpoint, a worldly viewpoint of truth. If you were to talk, am I on? Okay. If you were to ask a secular viewpoint, somebody with a secular viewpoint, what truth is, you'd probably get a large variety of answers, one of which is that truth is relative and there's no such thing as absolute truth, meaning that truth is based on one's own viewpoint and standard of reasoning. In fact, there's a category, which cracked me up, I had to look this up, secular philosophy called absolute relativism. which in my opinion, the very name is an oxymoron. The notion that relative truth, you won't find it in the Bible. I'm not here to talk about relative truth from a worldly point of view. It is complicated, believe me. But I will bring you the truth from the Word of God. And hopefully in some way, as it's been said, this message might afflict the comfortable but comfort the afflicted. Go to John 1, 1 through 14. Answer to Pilate's question. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor human decision, or husband's will, but born of God. 
The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. My first point of this is the truth is the Word of God in your study notes. John 17, 15 through 17 says, while Jesus was praying to the Father, he lifts up to his disciples by saying, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Something's cracking. I'm all cracked up. <laughs> okay, that'll work better. Oh, it's my left pocket. Is there a certain, like, physiological... Sorry, you got to switch it to the other pocket. I don't know why. And then... Um, it's close to my heart, right? Step forward? A little bit, because sometimes you get behind the speaker. Oh, okay. I'd be more than happy to step. I don't need to be up on a stage. That way I could talk to you eyeball to eyeball here. I like that better. I'll just read from this then. Better? Much better? Okay. Where were we? We're Jesus praying, lifting up his disciples to the Father. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus himself connects God, God's word, as truth, as one. That's the basis of which we will preach and teach, go church, that all messages come from is the truth of God's word. And we really don't care what the world thinks of that, actually. We want to reach out to the lost world with the truth. But they're not, what I'm trying to say is they're not the ones, the lost world is not going to be the ones defining truth in the Bible and defining it for us. That's what I'm trying to say. King David writes in Psalm 33, 4, For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. We can find three, at least three main points of the aspects of the truth of God's word. One is God's word of truth is related to history, or I'd like to say his story. The Bible records historical events and facts corroborated by archaeology. These things happened. The primary focus on the Bible is not centered on you, sorry to say, centered on God Almighty. That's why it's his story. It's centered on God, not man is to look at his glory and for us to come humbly before him. God's word of truth is related to his holy character. This is where we get the moral aspects of what is true. God reveals his nature of a morally pure character through his word and calls his own to imitate him in like character as dearly loved children, Ephesians 5.1. God's word of truth is related to his promises. 
The Bible is hundreds of fulfilled prophecies and promises of God. Since he is faithful to his promises kept, we can be assured and trust that he will keep promises yet to be fulfilled. I like to look at it, remember when, when Pastor Mark was going through the Bible, the Old Testament, and he went through all the hand things. I don't have the hand things, but I think of the Bible in a similar way. I look at the Bible as God's truth. It's not one book, it's a, it's a library. It's a book of 66 books written by some 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years on three continents written by people of all walks of life, kings, prophets, statesmen, doctors, shepherds, a tent maker. <laughs> all these people. And they put together the Word of God directed and carried by the Holy Spirit to one synonymous His story that we can all come and know God's will and who God is. Now back to our text, John 1, 4, or 1, 1 through 14. John described for us in the introduction of his gospel, I'm going to introduce this to you, the Hebrew concept of the word of the Lord. Think of the word of the Lord as one. Technically, it's the word of Yahweh. Okay? So when you think of that, this is how John is describing this. The word of the Lord comes hundreds of times in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came to Moses. The word of the Lord came to Joshua. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Jeremiah. All these things, the word of the Lord came to. Insert the blank. John uses the Greek word logos here and his description of this concept. But what John is describing in the text using Greek is he's describing a Hebrew concept. And he uses the single word in Aramaic to, to describe what the word of the Lord is, four letters in English, is describing one word in the Aramaic, and that is memrah. A.T. Robertson points this out in the Gospel, Harmony of the Gospels, if you read that. And for the sake of familiarity, I'll just say the word, because this is what he's speaking of. The next point of this is the word, and he's bringing out of Memrah, the word of the Lord. The word is both distinct and one with God. Verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This verse gives us a hint of the plurality and unity of God. The rabbis, when they wrote their text, when they, this was done, they just left it there. They didn't try to explain it. They just stated it and left it as is because that's what the Holy Spirit moved them to do. So we get that hint. The first truth is that the word is sometimes distinct, but other times the same. There's many verses I could choose. So I, I, I chose a verse that we're going to come back to again, but it's, it's where Thomas is asking Jesus, uh, show us... Show, show us the way. And he says in verse 
6 of chapter 14, this idea that he is distinct and one with the Father. Jesus answers Thomas by saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you know him and you have seen him. Now, at once, we see Jesus speaking about God the Father in the third person to Thomas, distinct from himself. Yet, Jesus tells him that if he knows him, meaning Jesus, he will know the Father as one, one equally. There's other places I could go, but that's one that I see that both of those are happening at the same time. Next point, the word is the agent of creation in verse 3. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now, the word of God, Memorah, was the agent of God's creative work. We must remember that in God's economy, his word and his will are not divided. When God desires to create something, he speaks it, and it is so. Psalm 33, 6 and verse 9 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. And in verse 9, For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Now I realize that this is poetic text, but nevertheless, It makes a direct correlation between the word of the Lord and the creative will of the Lord. In the New Testament, Paul states plainly in his letter to the Colossians that Jesus is the Lord of creation. In chapter 1, verse 16, Paul writes, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus truly is the agent of creation. The next point, the word is the agent of salvation. All of these could be sermons. <laughs> Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human will, but born of God. And yes, I added verse 13 in there too. Whenever you read the word salvation in the scriptures, you should ask yourself two basic basic questions, two of them. The first being, what kind of salvation is being talked about? Physical, spiritual, national? And the second question is, and the most important one is, what am I being saved from? Those are mental exercises and questions I would encourage you all to go through every time you see that word salvation. What kind of salvation is it? And what am I being saved from? Picking back up to where we left off in Colossians chapter 1, Paul brings us to the truth 
that the word of the Lord is the agent of salvation. He writes stating, or starting with verse 17, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his shed blood on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through the death to present you holy, in his sight, without blemish and free of accusation. The answer to the first question of what kind of salvation we're speaking of is that Paul is talking about your spiritual, eternal salvation in this context. The second question is, what are we being saved from? Okay. I'll first tell you what it's not. We are not being saved from... now. While we're on earth here, we're not being saved from trials of life, physical disease, physical and emotional suffering, potential poverty, receiving persecution from a godless world system, and we're not even saved from the wrath of Satan. Hmm. You might say, well... Those are some pretty bad things. What are we saved from, you might ask? One of the most important things to know when you come to Christ, what does He save you from? He saves you from the coming wrath of God to His creation and His creatures in it. called sin. The wrath of God is something to be feared over because when that time comes, Memrah, word of Yahweh, Jesus, will come and through a process that we read in Scripture, remove all sin from this place, heaven, it'll be gone. So my question to you is, you might think of, oh, I'm not, I don't, I don't sin, I don't do all these bad things that say I've got to confess. I, I'm a pretty good person. But are you in fellowship with Him? Are you connected? Have you placed your trust, not in yourself, but in God through His Son? Because if you have, you will be spared from that removal of sin and sinful creatures from this place to its own place eternally. And those who belong to him will be his family who will be restored in a new heaven and a new earth for eternity. That is what you're being saved from, the wrath of God. 
We can trivialize all the different levels of sin and which ones are worse than others and all this other stuff. You can do that all to your heart's content. But the bottom line is you will be saved from the wrath of God to come. He rescued us from that dominion and delivered us into the kingdom of His beloved Son where we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. He will reclaim it, remove all who reject that offer that God through His Son has placed, offered all of us. The good news of the gospel is simply this, that in Jesus Christ, your bondage to sin and death is over. And you will be kept in Him. Let that sink in for a little bit. There's a couple points here that I want you to sink in a little bit. As we move on, the last point, the word, Memrah, the word of the Lord, Yahweh, is the means by which God becomes visible. Verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. When God made divine visible appearances that we read in the Scripture, those are called a theophany meaning simply God appearance. But the term ancient rabbis used for that very same thing was the word Shekinah. You may have heard Shekinah, glory of God. But Shekinah is the word that is the same thing as the visible appearance of God, usually by light, fire, smoke, cloud. We see in the wilderness readings and all that. So that was Shekinah. What was included in the word Shekinah that's not really included in theophany, although it is, but the idea really focuses on not only his appearance, but his dwelling with. So Shekinah means not only God's divine appearance, but him dwelling with. This is where we get Emmanuel, God with us. So that's the idea of dwelling with. Now, John uses the word, which is really interesting. He uses the word, the verb form of tabernacle in this verse. The Greek word skene. Okay? So if you were to read this verse in Greek, you were to, you would do, and it's defined this way. It's shown that the English is good. It says that the word became flesh and tabernacled with us, dwelled with us. If you're a Jewish reader of the day, you could read this verse this way. Memra became human and shekinahed with us. Now, the reason why I say that 
is because the word skene is used in the Greek. Now, if you're familiar with Greek, you know that the Greek does not have an S-H pronunciation. You cannot say sh, but it does have an S, s. So when they write it in there, it's skene. Jewish person would read this and go, that is actually shekene, shekina, dwelling with us. Divine, glorious, God Almighty, Shekinah with us. It's awesome. <laughs> I just think that's awesome to know that that is what John is referring to. He's describing this. Why do I know that? It's because the following words say this. John says, We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, pointing to the transfiguration of Jesus when he displayed his Shekinah glory on the mountain to Peter, James, and John, the writer of this gospel. Think of the scene for a moment. Here you see Jesus, the human being, the man, the one that you're placing your trust in, all of a sudden change in appearance, and the glory of God is right before you. That is the word of truth. That's the word of Yahweh. That is Jesus Christ. He is the one who is almighty, God of creation, God of salvation, the truth that Pilate was asking for. Let that sink in for a moment. In conclusion, if you haven't yet figured it out, the Bible makes it very clear the word of the Lord is Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus himself is the truth that stood before Pilate when he asked, what is truth? The Bible gives a clear answer. The truth of Scripture is the foundation for all teaching here, as we know. And I would encourage you, speaking of the truth of God's Word as opposed to the worldly truth, I would just offer this, this in the application as kind of a sidebar. We're going to come into an election year. I'm not going to talk politics, but trust me. But we are coming into an election year. My caution to you is don't let the perceived truth of this world carry you away from the truth of Scripture. Because the world's truth is really good at telling you what you want to hear and will want to also push your buttons to get a response to rile you up. Okay, sometimes we need riling up, but not in this way, <laughs> because this way is geared toward you villainizing anybody that's opposed to your point of view. Just keep that in mind. Go to the truth. Keep the truth of God before you, His character in you. Witness that to others and build that up and grow in the Lord. As you go through whatever life throws your way, don't get sucked into that trap. Truth is that Jesus doesn't only show us the way to the Father, Jesus is the way to the Father. The simple meaning of John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, means this, simply, Jesus the Messiah has the final say and who belongs to him, who his family members are. 
Are you born of God? Are you born in his family today? I want to leave you with where we started with Pontius Pilate. He asks another question that I'll pose to you. That every person, I will say, must answer before their life is over on earth, before your life is over on earth. And it's either answered with our acceptance or our rejection of Jesus. Matthew 27, 20, 22. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and have Jesus executed. By the way, Barabbas, just a quick little nugget here. I don't know, on the rabbit trail, but this is, I'm just sniffing around for stuff. Anyway, um, Barabbas, his name means son of the father. Bar is Aramaic for son of, Abba, Hebrew far, father, son of the father. So you see Barabbas, you're reading it in the original language, you go, oh, here's the son of the father. Okay, keep that in mind. Which of these do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. And then Pilate asked this question. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Now this whole scene, the irony of it doesn't escape me at all. Here the crowd is wanting to release the son of the father, yet crucify the father's son. So I leave you with the same question today. Keeping the word of God, coming wrath, the safety of his love that calls all, does not want any to perish. I leave you with the same question. What will you do then with Jesus, who is the Messiah. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you humble as you save your prophet Micah 6 8. Help us to do what is right in you, Lord Jesus, to love mercy as you do, Jesus. And Lord, to walk humbly as you did on earth to the Father. Help us to emulate your character. Help us to partner with you for the work that you have in our sphere of influences with the people in this community. Lord, I pray if there is someone here that is yet to place their trust to you, Come to them. Pierce their whole heart. Know that they are in a safe place to trust you. Help them to resist keeping their own selfness and give it to you. I pray that in your son Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.
gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.